0: Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail...
1: Mm.
0: Earlier this year, a research facility attached to the National Gene Bank of Plants of Ukraine was bombed. This is the 10th largest seed bank in the world contains seeds that could eventually blossom into hundreds of variations of wheat and flowers and grasses, tens of thousands of plants of all shapes and sizes. Its function is like all seed banks. It's a backstop in the event of some terrible catastrophe. It's a workshop where scientists cross-breed different strains and species to develop hardier, more resistant plants. And it's a safeguard in case a particular species of plant is wiped out and needs to be brought back from the dead.
1: Everything you're going to need for the world to survive in terms of agriculture is safely kept here for the future.
0: Behind the door, there are nearly a million different varieties of seeds from all over the world. The Noah's Ark of plant diversity. But here in Aotearoa, despite having dozens of native species on the precipice of extinction, there's no one seed bank that holds all our taonga or knows how to keep them all safe. So today on the podcast, te tira whakamātaki Māori biosecurity researcher and policy advisor Marcus Rongofitiao Shadbolt on what seed banks are, why they're important, and what Aotearoa needs to do
1: to improve in this space. So a seed bank is a facility that is devoted to storing plant seeds, effectively, and through history and the rise of continued and intensified agriculture practices, they've become bigger and more complex around the world. The work takes place deep underground in a labyrinth of sealed vaults that are encased in steel and concrete. Different seeds are stored in different ways, the sort of standard stock standard method that historically has been used and we can apply to most of our seeds is to dry them out and then put them somewhere cold to stay for a while and when we dry them out and put them somewhere cold they're very happy to just stay dormant as they are for however long that particular species will stay dormant for and then when it comes time to plant them we can take them out of that facility and plant them wherever we need them. Is it kind of like a library? Of seeds. Yeah, it's definitely like a library of seeds. The, the sort of stock standard seed bank's purpose is to store a collection. So that's what botanic gardens are really good for and have done for a very long time, is they'll collect, for better or worse, all the different seeds they can find and store them in a library or a collection of sorts. That's what the biggest seed bank in the world, Kew Gardens, aims to do. Its ultimate goal is to ensure the survival of every remaining species of plant on Earth. Are all
0: seeds created equally when it comes to preserving them or are some seeds trickier
1: than others? They're absolutely not created equal and that's the challenging part for seed banking. So the only bit of jargon that I'll burden you with today is we have our simple storage seeds. So those are the ones that you can dry out, put them in a jar, put them in a bag, put them in a cold room and they'll be fine for a number of years. And those ones we call orthodox. And so they are the very simple seeds that are perfectly happy to be dried out and stored for a while. Then we have what we call recalcitrant seeds. And recalcitrant seeds are seeds that if you tried to do that to them, they would die. And so those are seeds like, you know, an avocado. If you think of an avocado or a tomato or something like that, it would be very difficult to imagine that seed without the huge fleshy fruit part around it. And if you tried to dry that out, it would very quickly die and you wouldn't be able to plant it again. So those are our recalcitrant seeds. They're our seeds that you need almost an entire study dedicated to each one just oh, to really? figure out how to store it. Wow. And they can require all sorts of things. Cryopreservation has proven quite useful for those. So that's effectively just snap-freezing it with all the moisture inside of it still and then thawing it out at, the, at a later date. It's not quite as successful as... Our orthodox seeds are, but it has proven to work in many seeds. But yes, we have many, many that we we don't know how to store.
0: I think Cody is a is a tricky as a recalcitrant seed, isn't it? And that, that's something that has been trialed and and what did you say it was called? For cryo,
1: cryo preservation, cryo
0: preservation. Yeah, that, that's been trialed with Cody seeds, isn't it? And it's been moderately successful. Am I right in saying that?
1: So the last I heard about the Cody project was that. Someone figured out how to store them, and they could do it, but they only lasted for something like thirteen or sixteen days in storage, so after that time, you would have to plant the seeds or risk them going off basically.
0: Cody is an interesting example here in that most of the cody forests that we have here in Altero now are regenerated forests, and we were actually we were on the precipice of of losing Cody as a as a tree for, for some time. For well over a century, timber was the new colony's main source of trade, when the plunder of the great forests was necessary for economic survival. In fact, in the 1950s, many believed the kauri as a species was doomed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Comparing Kodi to its original spread and the way that it once was, it's in a very dire Position at the moment, we don't have very much original Cody forest left. Mm. I know some komatua who know where some ancient Cody forest is left, but I can guarantee they're not going to be telling anyone <laughs> any time soon. Our great walks have some of our ancient Cody forest left on there. Our great trees like Tane Mahuta, the biggest kodi in the country, that's an ancient tree. But there are there are journal entries from early European settlers here who were part of the initial Cody deforestation programs who recorded in their journals that some trees they cut down were so big that the stumps were large enough to fit a grand piano and multiple dancing couples on them to celebrate after a successful forestry expedition. So the trees we have now are nowhere near as incredible as the ones we used to have.
0: You were talking about the purpose of Seed Banks before. I'm curious as you get into this. Like the way that you described it before is kind of you know, like a library, sort of like a I don't know, like a, a, a documentation, I suppose, of the different plants that grow on this beautiful planet of ours and um, you know, what they look like
1: and, and so on and so forth.
0: Is there a, a sort of a practical element to seed banks as well though?
1: Yeah, so the seed banks really have what I see as four key purposes. Um, the first of them is simply to conserve plant diversity, as we've mentioned. That is just to catalogue and make sure we have backups of seeds saved away somewhere, just in case we need them. Um, they also are really useful for breeding new varieties. So when crop grower um, has a particularly bad drought one year or a new virus gets in and we need new varieties of our crops to plant, seed banks are often the first stop to oh, get a okay. hold of the original seeds so that we can develop new varieties from that. Uh-huh. They work very closely with providing solutions in disasters for food. So we've seen that example very recently and in sort of the last decade as well, where nations, for whatever reason, have had huge disasters, be that natural or war in some cases, tear through and destroy agricultural land to the point where seed banks have been the backup to restore food supplies to these countries.
0: Wow, really?
1: Has that happened in recent years? So we saw it this year in the Ukraine. There was a bombing attack earlier this year, I think in May, that destroyed a part of the Ukrainian National Seed Bank. In this situation, they've now sort of gone, OK, we've, it's a good chance we've lost a huge amount of our seeds stored here. Obviously, we've lost a lot of landscape through the war. And so the next discussion has been, well, how do we make sure that someone else has our seeds so that, however this ends, we can replant? And in 2015, we saw Syria had a similar situation.
0: It wasn't an environmental disaster that caused the first mass withdrawal from the seed fault. It was war. the war in Syria. Devastation in the rebel-held Sukari neighbourhood of Aleppo. The gene bank in Aleppo in Syria is now out of order. It's been bombed.
1: So their seed bank in Aleppo was destroyed in the wars there and they had to go to the Norwegian seed bank Svalbard to withdraw a number of crop species there to help replant and recover afterwards. They
0: had to make a withdrawal from their seed bank account. Yes, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but, you know, the terminology and the language is kind of amusing. Okay, were those the the four purposes? Did you get through all of them, or did I interrupt you rudely in the middle of one?
1: Oh, so The only other one is to protect plants for future generations, so to make sure that no matter what disasters or no matter what consequences of climate change and war and anything else we face, we still have these plants around for the next generations to come. How do you tell the seeds apart? <laughs> It is hard.
0: Yeah, okay, and good, because that struck got, me as a really dumb question, but I'm glad that it is difficult.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the sort of thing that you get better with, <laughs> with practice. They all have all sorts of different bits and pieces attached to them. I mean, you'll, you'll have seen every autumn, or every spring, I mean, like recently you have lots of leaves and seed pods all over the ground. Yeah, yeah. Those ones are all, you know, wind-dispersed seeds. Some of them come in fruit containers, effectively, you know, like all your fruits and ve- lots of vegetables and the like will... Being a little fleshy piece where the seeds are in there, it is difficult. It's usually easiest to identify the plant and then collect them from the plant and make sure you label the bag correctly.
0: <laughs> like, because yeah, I'm curious about this the the process of collecting seeds. Like, how how do you how do you go about it? Do you just is it like um I don't know you 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 head out into the wilderness and go around a bunch of different plants and and just take take seeds from them and put them in a in a wee bag.
1: Yeah, yeah, at the the basic level, seed collection is, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. You go out into a forest or a wetland or wherever you're going to find your plants, and in that process you identify the plant you've found. Oh, this is a tōtoro, oh, this is a cody. Break off some of the seeds. They might be in a pod sometimes. Other times they're, you know, hanging on by all other sorts of different mechanisms, and you collect them up, put them in a bag. Um, we make sure we don't put them in sealed containers because then they get rotted and decay in the bag a little bit over time once they get wet. So we keep them dry and with some airflow, and then bring them to wherever our facility is, whether that's a shipping crate that we've turned into a seed lab or an actual facility like a botanic gardens or a university where we can dry them out and store them properly for long term. How does a plant go extinct? Well our our plants in New Zealand a lot of our shrubs that go extinct go extinct through grazing. So a lot of introduced introduced pests have had a huge impact on our lowland shrub plants and on our larger trees when they're in their early years. They are prime targets for deer and pigs and lots of other low-grazing animals that have been introduced here. Deer especially tend to really decimate the forest floors and take out a lot of shrub species. Are there... I'm putting you on the spot here, but are there...
0: Plants in Aotearoa, particularly with regard to native plants, that you would say we're in bad shape extinction wise, where you know, it is actually really, really vital that we and we'll get on to this soon, but it is really vital that we do have a comprehensive supply of, of seeds just in case the wind changes on these particular species of plant?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So plants are a little bit different to our birds and how quickly they go extinct. They are much longer lived. Our plants than uh, most of our plants than a lot of our birds are, so we have had six extinctions of plants in New Zealand, which doesn't sound like a huge amount when compared to birds and other fauna, but we have one in thirteen native plants currently that are at risk of extinction, and on our nationally critical list, which is the most endangered a plant can possibly be, there are thirty seven species Gee. so. To get onto this nationally critical list, there needs to be less than 250 mature individuals left in the wild of this plant. And so that's things like kakapeak is probably the most well-known one, a beautiful red plant once favoured by the now extinct huia that has, last I heard, one wild kakapeak left in the country on an offshore island. It does still exist in a number of gardens and cultivars, but... wild self is effectively extinct at that point. Other plants like the quillwort which is an aquatic fern, they are only in Landcare Research Aquariums, I think they have 12 of them at the moment. There's limestone crest plants, there's only 50 of them known on a couple boulders in the South Island. There's many other plants just like that which have either one site left or a few left in a cultivar that are unlikely to ever make it onto the extinct list, but in terms of their effect and impact on our country, are effectively extinct at this point.
0: Because I guess, if if you take a relevant but hypothetical sort of scenario here, you know, imagine that kauri dieback really would seriously get out of hand in Aotearoa and um, and you know devastate uh, the kauri that we do have here at the moment. I suppose a situation like that, which is eminently plausible, really, in a lot of ways. The levels of kauri dieback in the Waipoa forest are so severe. But scientists say the giant tane mahuta thought to be from 2 to 4000 years old could be dead in a year. That demonstrates the utility of seed banks right like you can you can you can almost literally bring something back from the dead with a well stocked seed bank.
1: Yeah, we absolutely can and that's the huge appeal of seed banks to me I think. We have talked in the media and in the science sphere recently about the idea of de-extinction. So the idea of bringing back things that are extinct and have been gone for a while back to the world. uh, That's a very costly exercise to do. A much cheaper option, especially even in this space still with seed banks, is to not let it go extinct in the first place. And so having those seeds stored and ready to go can save hundreds of millions of dollars in the long term.
0: You were talking earlier about the... Seed bank in Ukraine, maybe we should talk about that a little bit in a little bit more detail here because you know this this is part of the reason as why we we're, we're sort of talking here uh, Ukraine just to see the scene here had one of the largest seed
1: banks in the world um, What happened to it recently so the Ukrainian national seed bank was the tenth largest seed bank in the world and it was partially destroyed in a missile strike as a result of that. It was effectively abandoned by the scientists there for safety reasons, of course. So the Ukrainian seed bank particularly was used for their grain seeds and their grain collection. So the Ukraine is the world's fourth largest grain exporter. And that seed bank was sort of the backbone of that industry, really. It was how they adapted and improved on their seeds to be drought-resistant, to be disease-resistant, pest-resistant, all those good things that keep our crops healthy and available for global export So the Ukraine has had backups in the past put away in the Svalbard seed vault in Norway. The collection in Svalbard was only 4% or is only 4% of the species that the Ukraine had in their own seed bank, which covers 1,800 crop species. And so the Ukrainian mindset seems to have turned to, we can't get our seed bank back or back in operation anytime soon. We need to collect as many other seeds as we can and send them to Svalbard to be looked after until this war reaches its conclusion. The next issue from that is that it's very difficult to, as you'd imagine, divert resources away from a war front to go collect some seeds. While it's long-term probably a fantastic idea to divert people to seed collection, it's a very hard thing to sell in their current situation. Understandably, yeah.
0: And that, I mean, I'm presuming that... Because that—that that is another utility of seabanks that that you you described earlier, is you know the idea that this is a uh, key in uh, evolving agricultural technologies and crossbreeding seeds and performing experiments on seeds to make them more resistant to certain weather conditions and and so on and so forth. And I'm making the assumption, correct me if I'm wrong, but the fact that the seed bank has been so badly affected in Ukraine will have a devastating impact on them economically in terms of their ability to grow and export wheat, which, as you you say, is is an absolute cornerstone of that, that country's economy.
1: And it's not something that's just a Ukraine issue either. As the fourth largest exporter, that loss in supply is going to have huge carry-on effects all throughout the world through the grain markets increasing the prices of all of our food products effectively.
0: Ukraine's agriculture minister announced today that the area in which the country's spring crop will be planted might shrink by more than half this year, compared with the levels expected before the Russian invasion. This hit to Ukraine's production will affect the global food supply, and experts say drive up food prices.
1: And it doesn't help that the third largest grain exporter was Russia, and that nobody is going to be buying Russian grain for a very long time, I presume. So... The world has really taken a huge hit agriculturally from that. And it's hard to think about grain being such a vital crop in New Zealand, given that most of our meat is grass-fed. But for the rest of the world, that's not the case. This is a a huge impact on them.
0: You've mentioned a couple of times the Svalbard Seed Bank, which is in Norway. That is also one of the largest collections in the world. But that is also facing... Uh, well, not necessarily an uncertain future, but it has its own issues, quite separate to the Ukraine's, but
1: um, related more to to climate change, is that right? Yes, the Svalbard Seed Bank is a fantastic facility, a very advanced facility, and its purpose was set up to be a backup for the world.
0: Deep inside the permafrost mountain, close to the North Pole, is a storage facility with the capacity to store over 4 million different crops and a maximum of 2.5 billion seeds. The Global Seed Vault was created as a backup system for the world's gene banks to protect humanity against any catastrophes that could potentially wipe out our agricultural diversity.
1: So that was where Syria withdrew their seeds from, as I mentioned earlier, after their seed bank was destroyed to help rebuild. The issue with the Svalbard Seed Bank now is that while it was built into the permafrost as a way to keep those seeds cold and remote, with climate change... The permafrost around the Arctic is a little bit less permanent now, and so it is very much facing risk as climate change continues to melt glaciers and ice in the Arctic.
0: Apparently, even the most advanced apocalypse bunkers aren't safe from climate change. Warming temperatures near the pole melted the ice and flooded the entrance to the vault. So I guess all of this is is sort of emphasizing the importance of... uh, well I mean I suppose in a sense you know sovereignty and and diversification and, and different countries around the world doing their bit when it comes to preserving seeds and so now we come to New Zealand I suppose and, and New Zealand's um, uh, capabilities in this kind of area and uh, I mean you, you were relatively scathing of, of them earlier it, it seemed like what what is New Zealand's um, position when it comes to our own seed banks?
1: So our, our main issue here with our seed banks, especially in regards to our native plants, is that we don't know how to store them. There hasn't been any real comprehensive studies looking at what the storage behaviours are of our key native species. So even if somebody with all the best intentions really wanted to go out and build a seed bank, they wouldn't know how to store the seeds. So that's the main hurdle that we need to get through first for seed banking in New Zealand what
0: are the other sorts of heroes cuz like i'm i'm thinking <laughs> maybe inevitably given the terminology that we're using but like i'm i'm sort of thinking about you know Banks, actual financial banks, and you know, we, like we have a reserve bank in New Zealand, and then we have the commercial banks who who are related, of course, to the reserve bank, but um are their own sort of independent entities. I mean, like, if you had all the money and the power in the world and the expertise, like, and this was your sole remit, like, how would you design it? Would you have like a great big central um seed bank, like like the Svalbard Seed
1: Bank in, in Norway, and and
0: then sort of offshoots around that? So
1: at my company, Te Tere we have been looking at just that. We've been looking at how do we go about resolving the seed crisis and how do we do it appropriately for New Zealand. So the way we look at seed banking in New Zealand and the way that we would set up a seed bank kind of comes down to three key pillars or PO. So the very first one there is infrastructure. So we need to have the infrastructure in place to do it. Like you said, I think that one major facility in New Zealand is needed. One place that has the technology in the labs required to not only figure out how to store our seeds, and especially our more complicated ones, but a place where we can make sure that they are kept safe. Then, however, we also acknowledge the risk that having all our eggs in one basket can have. So the model we're looking at is what we call a hub-and-spoke model. So that focuses on the idea of having one major seed facility in New Zealand that does all the heavy lifting and is the major storage facility and then having a lot of spokes around the country. So that could be having a lab in a box set up on a marae in Northland. That could be having a relationship with Botanic Gardens to help support through them, through regional councils, through different farming groups in the farming sector, and all sorts of other places who have an interest, universities and the like as well. So the idea there is to have one key facility with a whole lot of little ones scattered around the country at place, and having them at place also much easier in terms of transporting the seeds they can collect them at place and store them at place
0: that's it for today i'm emil donovan the detail is public interest journalism funded through new zealand on air and produced by newsroom for rnz you can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform today's episode was engineered by phil benge and produced by sarah robson and bonnie harrison and thanks to Marcus Rongofitiao Shetbalt. Matewa.